Thank you very much. It is certainly a privilege for me to be able to be back here at Chazak. I say it every time, and it's still true, that since I decided to embark on a uh, uh, career, basically, where I travel around and I speak, as uh, Yaniv pointed out a number of times, I'm a world-famous speaker. That's, that's a code word for a man with no job. So, uh, so when I took this on, uh, the organization that has uh, uh, taken me the most has been Chazak, and uh, what can I say? Chazak, you know. Should, uh... The last time I was with Chazak was last May. Um, you probably didn't see it live. We actually did it for Chazak Radio, and it went on to the, uh, the YouTube, and uh, it's uh, gone viral, he says, that so many people have watched it and have really enjoyed it. And I said, that was because you were so good. And he said, yeah, I was. <laughs> And you were, so it's certainly a pleasure to, uh, to be able to have the opportunity to be here again in Chazak and to be able to work with Yaniv, who is one of the most L'Shem Shemayim people that I've had the privilege to work with over the years. I have to tell you, it reminds me. It's true. It's true. People who know me know I don't like to say nice things about people, but, uh, uh, you know, but it's, it's that level of sincerity that allows them to be able to stand up here and just list off program after program after program. I think it's somewhat specialized, some of the programs. I don't know how many people speak Hebrew, English, and Russian uh, at the same time in that year. But, uh, you know, but, but just, you know, everything. And every, uh, every cause in the community, they know that this is the address and they should just continue to go. Mechayel, chayel, to good things. We are in a time where... We are counting towards Shavuos. That is the process we are in. It is a strange name for a holiday, Shavuos. Shavuos means weeks. And since when would you call a holiday weeks? Because there were weeks of preparation? Then certainly Pesach should be called months. Because there's months of preparation that go into Pesach, you know, uh, I don't know about in every community, but I know when I'm in, uh, I know when I'm in Harinof, where I live, you know, you can meet people around Tubishvat. They say, "I think we're almost Pesadek," you know, and uh, I said, "Want you to stay that way all year already?" You know, if you you're already done, you know, months of preparations. But we don't call it that. We focus on what the Yontif is itself and what the purpose of it is and what we're trying to accomplish. And why is this called weeks? You know, the, uh, the Christians have a name for it. They call it Pentecost. You know, people don't know this, that some of the Christians are very from. They, they celebrate all the Jewish holidays. Pentecost, which is, of course, from the word 50, which is in Parshas Emor, how they describe Shavuos. It's described as, count seven weeks, and then, you'll bring a mincha chadosha. That's how it's described. It's very strange. The, uh, it's called Chaga Shvuot. It's called Chaga Katsir in the Torah. And it's called Yom HaChamishim. Nowhere is it called Chag Matan Torotenu. That idea of the, it being the holiday of the giving of the Torah, you don't find that in the Torah. It's not even mentioned. Okay, we know it when we look at the dates. But, but we don't see it celebrated that way. And it's interesting, by the way, when you think about it, it's the only holiday that doesn't have a date. 
It says, the Torah will tell you, on the 14th of the first month, on the 15th of the first month, on the 10th of the seventh month. Everything has a date. Here, there's Pesach, and then you count 49 days, and you'll come to the 50th day, and that's going to be a Yontif. Now today, of course, the calendar is set. And so we know that we have a month of uh, 29 days and a month of 30 days. But back then, it all depended how they made the month. You could have two months of 30 days. You could have two months of 29 days. You could have one of 29, one of 30. Shavuos could have come out on the 5th, 6th, or 7th of Sivan. It doesn't have a date. It's totally dependent on when you finish these seven weeks, you'll come to Shavuos. So, it's a strange holiday, and I have to, I have to maybe take it a step further when I say a strange holiday. Um, there is uh, traditional people, people who, you know, keep and remember, you know, what they saw from their fathers, and people keep Pesach. Uh, it's it's in Israel, ninety nine percent of Jews have a Pesach seder. It doesn't matter how secular you are, there's a Pesach Seder. There is a Haggadah to meet every need. There's a Reform one, and a Conservative one, and a Feminist one, and a, uh, you know, uh, I remember in the 70s, uh, you know, they had a special Haggadah for Soviet Jewry. You know, there's, there's all kinds of different Haggadahs. Somebody sent me before Pesach now an ad for a Harry Potter uh, Haggadah. I don't know what was in it, but I can only assume it was a magical experience. But, uh, you know, all can I got is, um, when the federations do surveys of which observances are kept by the major majority of the Jews, there are two that meet those criteria of being kept by most of the Jewish people. Pesach, most American Jews have a Pesach Seder, and Brit Milah, that's it. Not Yom Kippur, not Hanukkah. These two have uh, this tremendous power. So Pesach, everybody knows about. Yom Naroyim. Throughout America, architects have had to wrestle with how do you build a sanctuary that can fill and hold all the people who come for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur and not look empty the rest of the year. So they have folding walls and they close this up and close that up. Because people, for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, they feel something special. They're willing to come and they're willing to be counted as a Jew. We know this. This is, you know, when I uh, was a kid, I remember I was in a show where they would only let you in with a ticket. They had to show a ticket. They had a guard at the door. People were, they were afraid people were going to break in to Kol Nidre. You know what I mean? They had a guard at the door to bring a ticket, you know. My father told me there was this kid who came to give his father a message. He was in shul. So uh, the guard says, where's your ticket? He says, no, I don't have a ticket. He says, you can't come in. He says, no, no, I'm, I just have to give my father a message. He says, okay, but don't let me catch you praying. <laughs> you know, and literally, I had a guy with a ticket, you know. So uh, this, was, this was something that's amazing. You know, uh, Hanukkah, you can find people keep Hanukkah, you know, uh, it may be uh, uh, more in the breach. It might only be, uh, you know, a uh, you know 
uh, an electric menorah that they put in the window or they keep in the table or, you know, it might be something else. But, but there's some sort of sense of it. The least popular holiday by far is Shavuos. Most people have never even heard of Shavuos. I had a, a, a person tell me he was working, you know, and, uh, you know, he'd have to ask to get off every time there was a holiday, you know, as a non-Jewish firm. And, uh, and he asked off for Shavuos. So he says, okay, this one, you know, I'm sorry. There are three other Jews in this firm. I asked all of them. They never heard of this holiday. <laughs> they never even heard of it, you know. He said, I'll bring you a Jewish calendar. I'll show it to you, you know. Shavuos. You know? Now, okay, let's be fair. Rosh Hashanah has a chauffeur. You know, Hanukkah has a menorah. Um, Pesach, you have a Pesach Seder, you have the matzah, you know. There's nothing on Shavuos. Whatever we have on Shavuos are just later customs that were taken on. Yeah? The custom of staying up all night on Shavuos really started with the Mikubola Mitzvahs. Somebody brought me an article from a journal wherein they suggest that the custom of staying up all night on Shavuos was directly related to the spread of coffee in the Middle East. <laughs> now that to me makes sense. I don't know if it's true or not, but I can certainly see the relationship, you know. And then the, another custom, but it was a later custom, is to eat dairy on, Yom Ki- uh, on, on Shavuos. Now I have to point this out when I say this. When I was growing up, we had of our Yontif night meal was dairy. We literally had milk eggs, you know. I came to Etzel, and, uh, you know, almost everything I did was wrong when I got there. And uh, they said, what? You can't do that. Yontif, Yontif, you have to have meat. And Simcha Elabibasar, you know, you have to have meat. And you can't. I said, but there's a minute to have milk eggs. Yeah, when you come home from shore, you make kiddush, you have a piece of cheesecake. But you can't have a whole milk egg, a suda. So I changed my minute for a few years until I started davening in the shul of Rav Chaim Kreisworth, the Rav of Antwerp. And uh, his grandson said to me, of course we eat milk eggs. The Rav always eats milk eggs, shvuas night. So did the stipler. So was Rav Chaim Kanievsky. I said, I can't believe I was bullied into giving up my custom. <laughs> so now I go back to eating milk eggs, shvuas night. And uh, sometimes, of course, it's a challenging experience because, uh, you know, you make all of the milky delights that you can think of, you know, and uh, fish and blintzes and, uh, you know, uh, lasagna and, you know, and onions, whatever it happens to be, you know. And, uh, and it was a year uh, sort of like this, you know, where it was a two-day shavuos. I know for, for you guys that's, that's pretty standard, right? We don't have two-day yantifs in Israel. Two-day yantif is something that was invented to encourage aliyah, that's the reason that you people have two days, yeah? And uh, we don't do that, you know? It's not part of our religion. So, uh, but Shavuos was going to be two days. So I was frying schnitzel for, you know, the next day lunch. You know, on Shabbos, you can't cook. You know, I have the schnitzel beforehand. And when schnitzel first comes out of the pan, it's a little schnitzel, you know, there's something so enticing about it. One of my kids uh, decided to, like, take a schnitzel, you know, just like, pop it in her mouth, you know? I said, what are you doing? We're having milkshakes tonight. She cried that night. <laughs> My son offered to make her a scrambled egg, but it just wasn't the same. 
you know, just sat there, you know. That's when she developed her phobia. for those of you who are not familiar with it. phobia is the fear of becoming phlegics, you know, that many Jews suffer from. You can watch people do this. You come over and you say, oh, the soup's delicious, you want to taste it? No. I'll be phlegic. What if I want coffee with milk or ice cream? I can't. I can't. It's a six-hour commitment. You understand? And you wonder why there are so many Jewish singles. You know what I mean? Like, you know, a six-hour commitment makes us nervous. You know what I mean? Like, you know, get married forever and forever and forever, you know? I used to do that when I had a student who was from seminary and I'd be invited to the vort, I was at the men's side, you know, and I'd look at the chas and I'd go, it's so beautiful, you're getting married, and marriage is forever and forever. And you see the sweat dripping down. You know. So uh, that's because they don't usually think about it. Guys have a very easy time getting engaged because they don't realize that means at the end you have to get married. You know what I mean? They haven't worked that part out yet. <laughs> They're like, uh, you cook? Okay, I'll live here. Anyway, so girls go through all this existentialistic angst, you know what I mean? I'm going to change my name, I'm going to be pregnant, I'm going to do this, I'm going to handle this. Guy's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so uh, the commitment's a little easier from that point of view. But anyway, so uh, we, but milk is a later tradition. People try to come up with all kinds of reasons, you know? There's, there's one reason that I've heard many times, and... and uh, I forgot, there was, it's actually Bashem a, a Rebbe, but I never got it. I, I tell you the truth. They said, you know, they didn't have Torah beforehand. So what did they do if they wanted to eat? You know, uh, they came back from Harsinai, and now if you want to eat, so you're going to have to sharpen a knife and shecht an animal, you know, and then you're going to have to check the lungs, you know, and then you're going to have to, you know, soak it and salt it, and, you know, and, and uh, take out the, you know, uh, uh, take out the parts that you can't eat, and then, you know, prepare it. So instead, they just came home, and they, 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 they opened up the fridge, took some cottage cheese, you know, and sat down. So first of all, they didn't have a fridge. Second of all, they didn't have cottage cheese. And uh, third of all, they ate mun. So I don't know how much preparation time that requires, you know what I mean? You know, you could just think of it as being fleshings, and that's enough, you know? But, uh, you know, but there are different explanations that are given. Why do we eat milchings, you know? <clears throat> but those are customs. If you take out the later custom of staying up all night and eating milchings, which, by the way, I think are related, because if you want to be able to drink the coffee with milk, you have to be milchings. That's the reason they use the milchings at night. I haven't seen this brought down, but to me it's pretty obvious. Anyway, so... <clears throat> Assuming that coffee is, of course, the source of the uh, of the custom. So, um, <coughs> so when you see that, uh, take these two things out. What shvuas? There's no sukkah. There's no dalit minim. You know, thanks. Uh, there's uh, there's all kinds of things that you know. You, you, you know, every holiday is something associated with it. What shvuas? You know. So because of this, uh, I don't know. If because of this, but. Shavuos doesn't get the same press that other Yom Tovim do. I think it might be more than that, too. It might be more than that, too. And that is that Shavuos is the day where we celebrate the Torah. And that requires us to have a deep appreciation of Torah. The Greeks outlawed a number of things. Very fundamental things. One thing they outlawed was the learning of Torah. That's the reason we added in the Haftarah when we couldn't do 
the regular Kriyata Torah, the regular laning. So we substituted a half Torah, you know. <laughs> I asked a student once, why, why did we put in the half Torah? They said, well, forget, half a Torah is better than none, you know. <laughs> I said, okay, that's, that's one approach, you know. But uh, they outlawed the learning of Torah. Why? They didn't, they didn't worry about other mitzvahs. Because we know that if we can... Uh, this is what the Greeks understood. They're very smart. I don't care if you keep ritual. Because ritual will die out. But when you learn Torah, then that's something that's going to transform you. And when I say this, I mean that the Ramchal writes in Mesil Shusharm and in Derech Hashem, in both places, the same thing. He says, if you learn Torah, as long as you don't learn it to make fun, but as long as if you just learn it with the same interest that you would, uh, you know, uh, math or science, yeah, you learn Torah, then it's going to automatically change your life and transform you as a person. And he brings a chazal from Eicha Rabosi, which says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, Halavai Osi Azu, Halavai, they would abandon me and still keep my Torah, learn my Torah. Because the light that's in it will automatically bring you back to good. I'll tell you a story without getting into any of the implications of it. Because uh, I, I, I don't mean to, to endorse or not to endorse the position. It's not my place. You know, uh, I, just, I just find the punchline of the story fascinating. With Matisio Solomon, who's the Mashkiach in Lakewood, Chassid uh, met him, and he says, I understand that the Mashkiach does not travel from Lakewood to New York on Route 9. He says, that's true. He says, why? He says, there are certain establishments there that uh, I don't feel are proper. I don't want to see them. I don't want to look at them. You know, and uh, therefore I go a different route to avoid those places. So he says, I didn't realize the Mashkiach had such a sensitivity to these matters. So he says, well, you know, I try. He says, and yet you let your Bahram go out with girls unsupervised on dates instead of having a sit-in date, as has always had been Jewish tradition? I'll take just a moment to reflect on that. <laughs> with Avram uh, Tversky, Rabbi Dr. Avram Tversky, uh, who is, of course, both... Uh, uh, descendant of great Hasidic houses and also a psychiatrist. Yeah, whether or not there needs to be a connection or not is not my place to decide. But uh, he has both of those gifts. He wrote an article once in Jewish Observer. He says, I feel so bad for you, Litvisha. He says, because you guys have to go out on a few dates, depending on your society, three, four, five, 10, 15, 20. And in that amount of time, you have to develop a meaningful relationship. It takes years to develop a meaningful relationship. You can't do it in a few dates. So what? You have to pretend that you developed a real meaningful relationship. You know? He says, we don't play that game by the Hasidim. You know? The parents work it out because the parents know the kids better than they do. When we sit down, we work it all out. We work out their finances. We work out what we can. So then the two of them meet. And as long as you find each other attractive and basically nice, you get the rest of your life to build, you know, a, uh, a relationship. I said this over once in the Ve'i Yerushalayim. 
a school, and there was a lot of women who were beginners there. He says, you can't get married until you know everything about the other person. I said, what does that mean? How are you going to know everything about the other person? Because could you imagine getting married to somebody and not knowing what their favorite color is? I came home, I asked my wife, what's your favorite color? <laughs> she goes, I, I don't know if I have one. <laughs> I said, okay, I, just, I guess I, I should have asked that question earlier, I suppose. You know? We already had grandchildren, you know, and I didn't know. So, like, you know, I don't know how we managed all those years. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, what are the expectations? You know, we have tremendous expectations. You know? so, uh, so he says, by the Hasidim, we don't have that, you know. I said this over to some singles on the west side, and they said, you know what, it can't go worse than the system we got, so maybe, maybe it's a good idea, you know. But, uh, but be that as it may, you know, so it used to be that, you know, you'd sit in the house, you know, in the living room. One of my kids wanted to have a sit-in date. I said, there's not a chance it's going to be in my house, you know. You know, when my first daughter was dating, you know, we had to lock everybody into the room. When I say that, I mean like with a key, you know, because they would just be like, you know, had to be poking up all over the place, you know what I mean? So, uh, you know, so, but they finally went out and they said they were engaged. We were so happy. We didn't have to clean up the house anymore, you know what I mean? And we could let everybody run wild. Then they got a chance to really know the family, but by then it was too late. Anyway, but, uh, you know, so they had a sit-in date, you know, you know, like that. Otherwise, you go off, where, where are you going off on a date? You know, a guy wrote a letter in the same issue in the Jewish Observer. He says, could you explain to me why when I'm going out on a date to find someone to marry in order to be able to build a true Torah home, I'm encouraged to go to places which if I went to on my own, I would be thrown out of yeshiva. <laughs> could you explain that to me? Well, I was dating back in 19... So... Um, <laughs> So I was not very, uh, I wasn't very savvy. So I, uh, I asked my friends, where do you go uh, to date? You know, and they said, oh, there's a great place in Greenwich Village called the Olive Tree. I don't know if this place still exists. Oh, you love it. They have silent Charlie Chaplin films playing. The tables are made out of slate. They give you a little bowl of, of chalk, you know, and you can rent games, you know. So... <laughs> You go to this, you know, this like little cafe club. I don't know what it is in Greenwich Village, and it's all filled with these Greenwich Village characters. You know what I mean? And all these people <laughs> wandering around, and three tables of guys in suits and hats, <laughs> <laughs> and girls all dressed up. You know, playing with chalk on the table. <laughs> it made a deep impression. Anyway. So, uh, you know, so when you, you know, uh, so this is what his kasha was on him. He says, why do you let your boys go out? Okay. So there was any number of answers that Matazio could give. This is the answer he gave. You're right. You're right. It's not, not the best way to do it. But you have to understand that the Gedolim came to America after the entire destruction of everything that they had in Europe. And they came to America and they found a Chorban. And they found terrible problems in Kashrus, in Shabbos observance, in Sneas, in every area. And they said, we can't fight on every front. We're going to put all of our kochot into one thing, building the study of Torah. Because that will change the entire world. Watch. Now, it happens to be fascinating, because I was growing up in the 60s, and at the time, orthodoxy was dead. Every article was being written about how orthodoxy was dead. And uh, 
uh, Orthodoxy was a religion for old people in the Lower East Side and uh, in the South Bronx, and you know, and anyone who was Jewish who was modern was you know conservative, and that was it. In the 1980s, I have a fascinating issue of Tradition magazine, a journal, I should say, that's dedicated to the theme of Orthodox triumphalism that everybody had recognized by the 1980s that the Orthodox had already won. This is 20 years earlier. They had already written our obituary, and now they said how the Orthodox has won. In fact, the New York Federation did a study which was uh, highly criticized, but it was just playing with the demographics. They said, based on the demographics, the Federation should be spending most of its money on Orthodox institutions because they're on, the only ones that are going to be around in 30 years. Pretty, pretty powerful, pretty dramatic. And, uh, you know, what happened? What happened is because they put all of the emphasis into one thing, the study of Torah, it had this unbelievable power. Where is this coming from? How is this possible? So there's a Chazal that we're all familiar with, a famous story. It's based on a Pesach at the beginning of Parsha Zosa Bracha, where it says that before God offered us the Torah, he went to every nation of the world. And he went to Yishmael. And he said, Yishmael, do you want to accept the Torah? And Yishmael said, quite logically, I don't know, what does it say? Before you sign something, you want to read it. You know? My daughter just rented an apartment and the fellow wrote meticulously this, you know, this rental agreement pages, you know, small print Hebrew, you know. And, uh, and he says, you know, when I get one of these things, I read it through. I want to know everything that's in it, you know. He says, I did some, I did some uh, uh, you know, construction in my new apartment that I bought and uh, I brought in a kablan. And I also wrote a very careful contract. He just takes it and signs it. So I said, don't you want to read it? He says, no, no. No, no. I said, why? He says, no. I didn't know what he meant. Then I realized he was going to do whatever he wanted anyway. So it didn't really make a difference what he signed. He didn't really care, you know. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, you had a very careful agreement, yeah? So, so Yishmael says, I don't know. What does it say? So he says, well, uh, it says you can't steal. And Yishmael says, how can I agree not to steal? The Torah says, I'm a wild man. My hand is on everyone's stuff. Everyone's stuff is on me. The Torah says I'm a thief. The Torah defines my national characteristic as thievery. How can I accept the law that I know the Torah itself recognizes goes against my very nature? So they go to Edom. And they say to Edom, you want to accept the Torah? He says, I don't know, what does it say? He says, it says, don't kill. He says, don't kill. Olai Kosovo Torah, the Torah says about me. You will live by your sword. The Torah says I'm a murderer. How can I accept not to murder when the Torah itself recognizes that that's my national characteristic? A very good question. Because they're not even saying, uh, I'm arguing this is my limitation. I'm telling you this is what the Torah wrote about me. The Torah said I'm a thief. The Torah said I'm a murderer. So the answer is profound. And it cuts to the heart of the matter. You're right. You're right. 
That is your national characteristic. That is who you are. And, and, and I'll take it a step further. Every one of us has limitations. There's nobody here who doesn't have a, a, a limitation. You know, we have gifts as well, but there are certain things we're all born with limitations. You ever hear this expression, everybody's created equal? That's not true. No two people are equal. This guy has a fantastic memory and another person can't remember a name. This person is tall and strong and fit and the other person was born with all kinds of different diseases, you know, and weaknesses and short and then bad genes, you know. You know, this, this, this person, you know, is born beautiful and the other person is born beautiful impaired, you know, to be politically correct, you know. It's not, it's not, it's not equal, Okay, every single person has equal value. That's what we mean to say. But to say we're equal, it's not true. When people say life is not fair, of course life's not fair. On every single level. This mother decided to take care of herself during pregnancy. The baby came out healthy. This, this mother decided to drink and do drugs and all kinds of other stuff. And the kid suffered. It's not his fault. <coughs> well, somebody's born into a wealthy family. And they're able to provide him with every opportunity. Uh, another person's born into a poor family. You know, his parents work all the time. He's, he's left alone a lot, you know. He doesn't get the, the tutoring. He doesn't get the benefits. Uh, he's, he's lacking advantages. You know, not equal. So when we say we're equal and we approach and we say we have limitations, of course we have limitations. You know, you, you, you teach kids, and, and some kids have learning disabilities, which, uh, which are at times crippling. You know, a person tries to read, they have dyslexia, they have a focusing problem, they have a, this, this, this learning disability, that learning disability. It's possible to overcome it. But you understand that, the, you know, the challenges for this person is going to be so much greater. So, no, life's not fair. Life's not fair, life's not equal. And so when I approach something, I have the right to say, what do you want from me? I don't have that intelligence. I don't have that kind of a mind. I don't have that ability. And they're not wrong. They just don't understand the number eight. Because as you know, we have a holiday, it's called Shavuot. Shavuos, yeah? Shavuos is the holiday of seven weeks. But it's not a holiday of seven weeks, it's a holiday of the 50th day. But we call it Shavuos. We call it seven weeks. What's a week? A week is an unnatural period of time. A day is how long it takes the earth to uh, turn on its axis. Uh, a, A year is how long it takes the earth to go around the sun. A month is how long it takes the moon to go around the earth. What's a week? A week is a man-made construct. It's not a natural period of time. If you recognize that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh, then I understand why there's a seven-day uh, week. But otherwise, Napoleon, to whom we have to thank for the metric system. Yeah, many other things. But one of them was the metric system, where he put everything into base ten. 
<coughs> thinking it would be easier. Yeah, I'm coming from England. Um, I did a Shabbos there. And, uh, and England always had a system that was based on base 12. That's why there's 12 inches and a foot. And, you know, you want to work out your shillings and your crowns and all that kind of stuff. You know, it was based on 12. So they said it makes more sense to have it on base 12. Of course, base 12 has more factors. I'm sorry to take you back to high school math. Yeah, 12 can be factored by the numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 6, and 12. And so it can be broken up into pieces more readily. Uh, base 10 only has four factors, 1, 2, 5, and 10. So it's not as convenient. But we think in terms of 10, mostly because we have 10 fingers. And that's what the Roman numerical system was based on. 1, 2, is Roman numerals? 3, 5, 10. Yeah, that's it. That's where it comes from. Yeah. I'm such a fountain of worthless information. But anyway, <laughs> so... Um, <coughs> Well, I, I give a dafyomi shir there, so, you know, and every now and then I'll throw out one of these things, you know. We were doing a Gemara in, in Bacharos, and uh, they said if you cross a sheep with a goat, you know, so what's its status, etc. So I said, yeah, you, it's either called a, uh, a sheet or a geep. And they said, you just made that up. I said, no, that is what it's called. So everybody pulls out their phones, they all, they all Google it, they go, Oh my gosh, he's right. <laughs> How would you know that? This, this is my life. <laughs> Collecting worthless little bits of information, you know. That's why I had a Rebbe who once said to me, Orlowski, if only you could use your mind for good instead of evil. Imagine what you could have accomplished. But anyway, but, uh, you know, it, it's a, um, um, you know, the, uh, the, the, the seven weeks. So, so Napoleon made everything into base 10, Yeah. And uh, he wanted to do the same thing with a week. He wanted to have a 10-day week with 10 hours every day and uh, switch to a decimal calendar. And here, with 10 months, the, the, the people turned against him. That was too much already, you know? you know. Even Napoleon couldn't force that through, you know? But, uh, but there's no reason that you should have a 7-day week. What is 7 days? And when we say we count Sheva Shabosais, they're not seven, seven Shabbosas. Happens to be this year, it comes out to seven Shabbosas. And when that happens, the Gemara tells us, they make all kinds of changes to differentiate it from every other Shavuos because the Tzadukim used to make sure that Shavuos came out the day after a Shabbos because they wanted it to fit in literally. But we have a concept that there's a Shavua that doesn't have to do with Shabbos. This is a seven-day period. You have to count seven days, seven times. What's seven? Uh, I'm going to get Kabbalistic just for a moment because there really is no way to get through Sfiris Omer without Kabbalah. Lagba Omer is all this Shurn Bayechai Zohar, you know, Kabbalistic overtones. You know, uh, those of you who want to stay safe and stay out of Kabbalistic areas, you're going to hit a problem when you get into the Sfiris Omer. It's just, you know rife with Kabbalistic references. Even the you know, little arts called Siddur, which you'd think would be safe. You take a look after Sfiris HaOmer and you'll see that today is Gvur Shiva Chesed, Chesed Shiva Netzach, Netzach Shiva Yisod, Yisod Shiva Malchus. You know, every day has a Svira attached to it. 
So let's speak for a moment just about the spheres. There are ten spheres, which are translated as spheres, uh, emanations. It doesn't have a good translation. You know, unfortunately we feel a need to translate things, even though in the translation doesn't really help us. How do they always translate Kalim? Vessels. Vessels are boats. Nobody sits at the table and says, could you pass me a vessel? Nobody says that, you know? <laughs> but, but what are you supposed to say? You know, translate Caleb. Stuff, you know? Like, there's no word for Caleb that exists in English, you know? I, I, I would see certain people who speak, and they're very careful to translate everything, you know? So uh, he was referring to Tefillin, and he says, you know, phylacteries. I said, do you think there's anybody who doesn't know what Tefillin are and know what phylacteries are? You know, Tefillin, what phylacteries? Oh, thank you for clarifying that. I was speaking in an organization, you know, uh, in Elul, you know, and they said, next, next Saturday night we're beginning the penitential prayers. I said, just say slichos. No one knows what penitential prayers are, you know. So they don't know what slichos are, but at least you have the right term, you know. So uh, just wanted to get that off my chest. I feel much better. <laughs> it's very hard. Translations hurt us. Hear, O Israel. Who sticks an O in the middle of a sentence? It's like behold. <laughs> you know, I always love when they stick in a behold. When was the last time you used a behold? You know? Who's here? Behold, it is I. <laughs> and this always pops up in these English translations. All right, I have a lot of things that upset me, but I just... <laughs> I get cranky when I haven't had any sleep. <laughs> I woke up this morning in London at 4.30 in the morning. So I'm able to go dive in Vasekin so I can make a 7 o'clock flight out of London um, a seven-hour flight, which I did not sleep on. And uh, I've been here, and now it is on London time, um, about 2.30 in the morning. But I never really adjusted to the time, so I'm really on Israel time, which means it's 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> so although this may not be making any sense to you, if you were sleep-deprived, it would make a lot of sense. So there was, I used to be the last speaker at the Tikkun Lash Fuas they used to do in my neighborhood because I figured no one's going to come for anybody except for you and then there's a chance, you know and you know when you get really tired and you start saying things and they don't make any sense you know find someone who's like really tired and have a conversation with them did you ever go to the thing with the what? yeah yeah so when are you going to go inside? yeah, I, I, I was going to go um you know, so I don't know, I was talking at some point, it was only part of my brain that was still awake, you know, which might have been a little bit more than the rest of the people, you know, and at some point I made the statement, I said, <laughs> I just found the only part I remember, because it's like a prism of clarity, <laughs> and I look around and everybody's nodding, <laughs> and I shake myself, I go, prism of clarity, what does that mean, that doesn't mean anything, how are you nodding at this, what does that mean, you know, so the next year they called my uh, my speech I was going to be giving Prism of Clarity. <laughs> they cut to the chase, you know, my jet lagged anyway, you know. So. But um, uh, so this, this, there are ten spheres, we're told. Yeah? The top three, Chesed, Gvura, and Tiferes. Uh, excuse me, I'm sorry. The top three are Kesa, Chachma, and Bina. And they're called the Mochen, they represent the brain. Yeah, the skull is keser, and then the two parts of the brain are chesed and uh, it's chachma and bina. Not surprisingly, what does modern science tell us about the two sides of the brain? 
One is favored by men and one is favored by women. The part with the speech is favored by women. The part with the remote control is favored by the men. And also the email part of the brain is on the male side. And, um, and uh, you know, that's why Chachman Bina, another name for it is of the aim, mother and father, because they recognized already that there was a female and masculine aspect to it. Those three are very hard to access. We don't usually access those top three. We, we, we basically access the lower seven in order, going down. Chesed, Gvura, Tiferes, Netzach, Hod, Yesod, and Malchus. I could try translating them, but words to me like splendor and, um, you know, uh, these things don't have much more meaning to me than, you know, than saying, uh, you know, Hod and, and, uh, and uh, Tiferes. So I, I'm not going to bother translating them. But each one of these represents a certain power, and these seven levels fit into everything. They represent parts of the body. They represent what are called the kochve lechet, the seven heavenly bodies that can be seen with the naked eye. Sun, moon, Mercury, Mars, Venus, Jupiter, and Saturn. Saturn is the seventh. Yeah? And uh, that's why in Hebrew it's called Shabtai, from the language of Shabbos. And that would correspond to Malchus, kingship. And that's why it has a crown around it. That's the ring around Saturn is the crown that we put on. Yeah? And that's the, that's the seventh. They represent the seven days of the week. Sunday, moon day, Saturn day. Yeah? Well, I'm serious. That's where it comes from. For those who don't know. Anyway, uh, it really does. It comes from the days of the week. Um, the rest of the days, which don't follow the, the planets, is because they were given the names of, of Norse gods. Therefore, Thor's day was named after Thor. And Friday was named after Odin's wife, Freya. And uh, Iron Man Day, oh no, that's, I'm sorry, I'm confusing it with the Avengers. But, uh, you know, <laughs> hey, when you make a billion and a half dollars. <laughs> but anyway, but, uh, but you see, you still see it from Sunday, Moon Day, Saturn Day. These are named after those, those days. And they represent the seven days of the week, represent the seven spheres, those seven lower spheres. And this comes into everything. Anytime you find a seven, you're going to find it's going to tie into these things. Now, a, a quick word about the number seven. We don't have the number seven. The number seven, when you write the actual number seven, just means a lot. And that's why when the Pusik says, I'll chase you by seven roads, or by seven roads they will chase you, that just means a lot. To us, seven is six and one. Meaning, there are four Directions, up and down, that's six. And the point in the middle that ties it all together, that's the seven. Yeah, I use this marshal, and then I heard Reverend Heller use it, so I'll quote her. Yeah, it's the little ball on the inside of the Rubik's Cube that lets everything, you know, turn. Because otherwise, you know, if you want to try to turn the Rubik's Cube, because you want to try to solve it, <laughs> like you're going to do that. Um, you could do what my brother does. He just takes off the stickers and puts them back on. It's like, just, just as effective. Anyway, but if you want it to continue to turn, you need that little point in the middle that brings it all together so that everything's connected. Otherwise, your little pieces will fall off. That's what seven is. That's why six days you work, and on the seventh day, Shabbos, you rest and enjoy that which you earned. Six years you work, and the Shemitah, you enjoy that which you worked for. And it's always, you know, everything, the seven brings it all together. That's what Malchus says. It ties everything in. 
And that's how this world was created. That's why it's in seven days. And that's why whenever we talk about ten, you'll find it split by seven and three. Because three, we don't always access. For example, Avram Avinu at the Brisbane of Asarim has promised ten lands. We get seven of them, the seven nations. Three of them will get the Yemosa Mashiach. That's on a higher level. Um, there were ten plagues. Seven of them are in Parshish Ve'era. Three of them are in Parshish Bo. The, the seven and the three are often divided. And you, you find this. There's other examples. But, uh, but the seven is basically this world. Seven times seven is the maximum of this world. What do you come to then? Eight or fifty, which is just another way of saying eight. That's out of this world. Out of this world. When it's out of this world, it has nothing. Every eight or fifty, which is just a higher expression of that, is out of this world. So for seven days of sukkahs, we walk around with our dalad minim. And we sit in our sukkah, and we do all of our mitzvos. And then we put everything away, and we have shmini atzeres, where we have nothing. If the Gaonim didn't decide to tag on Simchas uh, Torah to it, you'd have nothing. It would be a day of nothing. You go through seven weeks, seven times, and then you come to Shavuos, and there's nothing. There's nothing there. Because it transcends everything. It moves to a different level. That's the power of Torah. Strange Gemara. You know, people often say this when they speak on Yantif, you know. You know, they're justifying the fact that they're giving you a shear on, on Yantif. You know, they say, well, you know, half of the day is for you and half of the day is for God. So this is part of God's time, yeah? So that's a machlekes in the Gemara. It's a disagreement. Do you really have to keep half the day for you and half the day for Hashem? Some people say yes. Some people say no. But even the people who say no agree that there is a mitzvah to eat and drink, physically celebrate on Shavuos, because that's the day that the Torah was given. I would say the opposite. That's a day that's all spiritual. Why would you eat and drink? And the answer is, because if it's a day that's all Torah, there is no eating and drinking. Everything that you do now through the power of Torah becomes exalted and lifted up. As the Masil Shasharim in the last parak says in regard to Kedusha, a person who is Kadosh, then what he eats are like offerings that are brought on the Mizbeach. What he drinks are like Nesachim that are poured onto the Mizbeach. There is no, there is no physical and spiritual pleasure. It's all spiritual. I thought to myself, that might be a different answer for the famous question that everyone's trying to search, why are we eating dairy? Because dairy has no status in Judaism. Yeah, you don't bring it, it doesn't have any mitzvahs associated with it, ever. You, you have a concept of bikurim, fruits you bring to the base of Mikdash. You have bread that you bring in the base of Mikdash. You have wine, you have meat. Even by vegetables, there's a concept of bringing trumas and maestras, a kilayim. There's nothing by milk and cheese. Other than you can't use non-kosher products in it, but, but as far as anything that's associated, as far as a mitzvah goes, there's nothing. There's nothing more mundane than milchigs. And on shvurs, even that gets elevated to a higher level through the power of Torah. And that was the mistake that Esav and Yishmael made. That's the mistake that we make. 
You're right, the Torah says you're a murderer. You're right, the Torah says that you're a thief. And if you accept that, then that's what you'll be. But if you accept the Torah, you can change who you are and become somebody else. You're not limited by your limitations. And so a person who's limited, you don't have to be limited by those. They tell a story. And it's well known. Chaim Kanievsky. And if anyone's ever, you know, had the schus to speak to Chaim Kanievsky, or, or you've read, or you've heard, you know, the man's knowledge is unbelievable. How much he knows in his breadth and depth of knowledge. You know, such detail. His father was going to send him out to work because he couldn't learn. Chazanish said, I used to sit and learn with him, Chumash and Rashi. I'd go over and he couldn't understand it. He didn't have a head for learning. He couldn't manage. And yet, somehow, he was determined and he overcame whatever his limitations were and he became one of the greatest scholars of our generation. I spoke to a fellow, Davis in my shul, and he says, I heard Rav Simcha Kuk, Rav Rechovot speak. And he says, I once heard the Panevich Rav speak. And he told the story when he was in Europe. He was being paid to learn with this, this Bacher. And, and he says, I, I, he had a head of rock. I was wasting my time. And I had made up my mind the next day I wasn't going to learn with him anymore. I don't want to waste my time. And I'm up in the Ezra's Nashim and I hear somebody crying. And I look down and it's this Bacha. He's holding on to the Aaron Kodesh and he's crying and he says, Akadosh Baruch Hu, I want to learn Torah. And I said, if he has that much of a gefil and he has that much Ratzon, then I'm going to stick with him. And he became one of the famous Rosh Yeshiva, said the Pan of Jerav, whose Torah we learn to this day. It says of Simcha Kuk, I followed him home and he wouldn't talk to me. He, he was closing the door. I stuck my foot in the door. I said, I'm not closing the door until you tell me who he is. And I can verify for you that he is a, a Rosh Hashiva whose Torah we learn to this day. So this guy says to me, so I followed with Cook home. I stuck my foot in the door. I said, I'm not leaving until you tell me who it is. <laughs> he says, no, I can't. You know, the punch of Rav Tommy. He says, no. He's just like, you got it from me, you got it from him. He says, and he told me who it was. I said, who was it? He didn't, he didn't mind telling me. I didn't have to put my foot in the door. Rebel Khanan Vasiman. You know, a, a person thinks, I can't learn. I can't do it. And the Torah has the power to transform us into anything we want to be. If you let it. That's the power. When we accept the Torah, all bets are off. We're not limited. Even though the Torah tells you you're a thief or you're a murderer, you don't have to be that anymore. You can become somebody else. You know, we wonder sometimes why we put so much emphasis on Libra Torah. I have an organization that puts so much time into people learning and making shiurim and making classes. What for? There's a famous story, very inspirational story. I'm going to kill it for you, but I'm going to first tell you the story because it's a beautiful story that I'm going to destroy it. It was... Uh, you know, by the Svartim, they have tremendous kavod arav. You know, 
Ashkenazim were a little less so. But uh, by the Svartim, tremendous kavod. So there was this guy who used to come to a shir every night, and he'd look around, shalom for the rab, you know, and the rab would start the shir, and he'd fall asleep. Baruch Hashem, he didn't snore. He just sat there, you know, sleeping. And when everybody got up at the end, he goes, oh, tadak for the rab, and he went home. He did this night after night. You know? So finally the rab says, listen, I feel bad for you. You're not getting anything out of the shir. You're just sleeping anyway. Why don't you go home and go to sleep? He said, Kvodah Rav, I'd love to. I get up before dawn. I'm a, de- I'm, 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 a, I'm a laborer. I work hard a whole day. All I want to do is come home. You know, and I want to you know, have something to eat and go to sleep. But my children have to see that I go to a shir. So I'm sorry that it's Pagay in your kavod because you know, I'm sleeping, but I, I can't keep my eyes open. But my children have to see it. It's a very inspirational story and very powerful. Now let me destroy it for you. Because I use this story without, without the part I'm about to tell you. Because it's true. Well, we, have to, we have to think what we're doing for our children too. You know? The, the end of the story is the Rav said, that's beautiful. Now what are you going to do for yourself? I understand what you're doing for your children. It's very noble. But when are you going to learn Torah? I understand. This is, you're not going to learn Torah here. You're doing this for your kids, the Hatzagah. But what about you? What are you going to learn? To? Where is it for you? With Aaron Cutler, this, this fellow was helping him raise money for the yeshiva. When they came home at night, he sits down and opens up the newspaper. So Aaron says, you're not going to open a Gemara? He says, don't worry, Rabbi, I've got my Olam Haba. He says, Olam Haba? I'm talking about Olam Haza. <laughs> Think about this world. Understand what the learning of Torah does? It changes who you are. You become a different person. It opens up possibilities to you that didn't exist beforehand. Shvuas is Chag Matan Torasenu. It's not called that in the Torah. It's called Yom HaChamishim, which is another way of saying the eighth day. It's a day that takes us out of the confines of this world and lifts us out. You Once you accept the Torah... Everything is possible. You can do anything you want. You can be anything you want. We spend so much time arguing our limitations. We spend so much time focusing on what we can't do. You know? And everything that we can't do, that might be true. But there's no reason we have to accept that. We could take the opportunity to become the people that we want to become. And that's why we call it Shavuot, Weeks, says the Al-Sheikh. Because we're celebrating the weeks of preparation that we spend in order to be able to receive the Torah. I, I don't have to do anything. God will give me the Torah. All I have to do is to be able to be able to hold my, my hands open. And the more I can hold it open, the more I'm going to receive. The more I'm going to take from that tremendous bounty and allow it to transform me, my life, spiritually, physically, my marriage, my relationship with my children, my relationship with society. I, I used to have to recruit for a school in Israel. So I was new at the job, so one of the Russian yeshiva gave me a tip. He says, whatever you do, don't tell the boys they're going to change. Nobody wants to hear they're going to change. So I went into the school, and I told this over. And I said, I'm not going to follow his advice. I said, if you ask me if I'm going to go to Israel and learn Torah for a year, am I going to change? I say, I hope so. Because if you don't come back from that year of learning Torah, a better person, a better son, a better brother, a better friend, 
a better businessman, potentially a better husband and a better father, and we didn't do our job. I didn't get any boys. So nobody wanted to hear that. <laughs> but it's true. And that's why Hashem says, if I have a choice between you abandoning me and learning Torah, I prefer you to learn Torah. Because I know that the power of Torah will change us and bring us to who we're supposed to be. My friends, these are the weeks of preparation where we prepare ourselves to become the people who can allow the Torah in. And if we do, then in Mirza Hashem, we will have a tremendous Kabbalah Satayra, and with that, become different people so that when we speak the next time, I'll have to speak on a much higher level. Because uh, I'll be speaking to a much, much more advanced group. <laughs> Thank you very much.